Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Amen. Hey, church family, be seated if you would, although that was a pretty good victory yesterday. Them old Tennessee Vols. Loved watching that as a Vol fan. Long time in coming. I want to say this. I have loved I have loved our series, The Gospel at Work. I love the picture that has been painted by Luke's sequel to the gospel, the very book of Acts. We've seen a picture painted of this, the Holy Spirit at work in and through the lives of a young church, and it has been thus far an incredible journey. I want to say this, as our TV sort of makes it over here, bless its heart, it's sort of struggling this morning, Uh, we, uh, man, I... I have a little bit of the crud. Do y'all, y'all know what that is? I, Dr. Wexer, I don't, I don't think it's a, a medical term, but I'm going to tell you, you know it when you have it, don't you? you? Your children come home from school, and they've sort of been diseased a little bit, and, and they, they come home, and they bring it home to healthy dad, and all of a sudden, the next few days, you're with humidifiers in your room and all that good stuff. But I tell you what, even in the midst of all that, I've been so excited to preach this word and to spend this time with you in Scripture today. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them up together to the book of Acts, chapter 4, and let's head towards the later part of that chapter in verse 32. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard the story of, of an elderly woman, and really she was the grandmother? You see, she had spent the day shopping, and she got all her groceries in her buggy. She headed out to the parking lot, and as she... As she brought her buggy right up to her car, something startled her. She, she looked into her car, and there were two men sitting in her car. And terrified, she just screamed in the parking lot, get out of my car. And the men didn't budge. And so she screamed again, get out of my car, and the men did not move. And so Granny gets down in her purse, pulls out a thirty-eight caliber revolver, says, I have a gun, I know how to use it, get out of my car. And those two men took off. How many of y'all have a mammal like that would do just that thing right there? Man, mine too. It's a picture of my grandmother. Here's the deal. She gets into the car, she finally gets all her groceries in, and she's just shaking. And she grabs her keys and she goes to start her car, and it doesn't work. She tries to start it again, and it's just not responding. And it dawns on her, this is not my car. She just hijacked somebody else's, she just carjacked somebody else's vehicle. And she gets out and realizes her car are just, is just a few spots down. And so she unloads everything, puts it in the car, drives straight to the police station. Tells the officer behind the desk, listen, I accidentally carjacked somebody at gunpoint. I am so sorry. And the officer begins to laugh. And she's like, why are you lying? He goes, because look at the other end of the counter. See those two guys? They're reporting a grandmother holding them hostage and stealing their car right now. But listen, and everybody dropped the charges. I would have loved to have been in that police department that day. Everybody dropped the charges. But here's what we find today. In today's scripture, what we deal with is someone taking something that was not theirs. And this time, justice is done. And this time, they actually pay a price for taking that which was not theirs. You know, the past few messages, we've been in a series of messages with this very challenge. It's time that we bring back bold. 
It's time that you and I bring back boldness to our walks with Christ individually. And it's also time that we bring back bold to our church collectively here in the United States of America. And here's the deal, though. As we are challenged to bring back bold, it's important that you and I have a biblical concept of what boldness is and what boldness is not. The Greek word parisa, that is where we get this idea, this idea, this common theme through acts of boldness. It means this, the willingness for someone to engage in an activity that involves risk or danger. Parisia, boldness. And what we see in the life of this young church is that's exactly what they were about, boldness in their faith, to Jesus Christ. Now, boldness is not just defined by this word in just our speech, but boldness is also found in how you and I live out our lives for our faith in Jesus. In fact, as we've watched this young church in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and even now into chapter 4, we see a young body of believers demonstrating and living out boldness and continue to do so on into Acts chapter five. Now we gotta recap a couple of the challenges that we have found through the word of God. You ready? Over the past couple weeks, here's some challenges and boldness. Number one, boldness begins with choosing boldness no matter the cost. We've seen that in the life of this church. Boldness builds by, by being with Jesus. They took note that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Boldness bows to none but Christ. Bows to none but Christ. And boldness doesn't just happen. It is prayed for and acted upon by the believer who is willing to simply ask for it. Boldness just doesn't happen to us. And as we continue to see today, we look at part of the story of this young church, a part of the story that is difficult. You ought to try preaching this someday. A part of this story that is difficult, but hear me, deserving of our attention. It is an event that allows us to ask this question. You ready? Which camp are you in? Which camp do you find yourself in today? Are you in the camp of the boldness of a Barnabas? Or are you in the camp, that of the apathy, a camp that has the apathy of an Ananias? Which camp are you in? So let's begin to set the stage in Scripture. In your Bibles, in Acts chapter 4, let's begin to look at verse 32. And the Bible says this, that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Now watch this. From time to time, those who own land, and note the the phrase there, from time to time. Those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now listen, the Holy Spirit was moving so much in and through this young church that it was even evidenced in their generosity, their giving, and the finances of individual believers. As we see in this text, The early church committed themselves, and what is apparent, that from time to time, as the need arose, that they would give above and beyond, that they would give incredibly above and beyond when the need was great in the early church. And we see that taking place, and apparently, we see that this early church had committed many of them to selling their stuff, their homes and their land, to give through the Lord 
through the local church by laying it at the apostles' seat. Now, let me just, let me just caution you here. We don't read Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and on, and decide today, let's call up Debbie, and let's just go ahead and put our house on the market today, right? We're not, we're not advocating for that. We're not asking you to go find that piece of land you've been holding on to and putting it up for sale today. That's not at all what we find here in the text, nor is that what the text is telling us. In fact, what we find taking place here is unique to the context of this period of time in the local church. Later on in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to find Mary. And guess what? She owns a home and she has a servant. And the people were meeting there to pray and to fellowship together. And so that's not what this text is telling us to do. It teaches us much more. In Acts chapter 4, here's a couple of things it teaches us. You ready? Number one, the Holy Spirit is at work in the life and the heart of a believer. It impacts all of their life. And even in and evidenced by their generosity, their giving, and their tithing through the local church. Now, at Connect Church, we celebrate tithing as the foundation upon which generosity is built. Tithing is the Old Testament principle uh, of setting aside and devoting, dedicating 10% of one's income to the work of ministry through the life of the church. But here's one of the, here's one of the things we uncover in this passage. You ready? One of the realities we see is that God cares about our finances and he has something to say about it. Just as he does our marriages, our parenting, our singleness, our work ethic, our business dealings, just as he does our hopes, our dreams, our hurts, our pains, and on and on. God cares about it all and God speaks to it all. Now, I always want to make this caveat. You you may be visiting for the first time. And literally 30 years ago, the reason you left the church is because all the church ever did was talk about money. And this is your first time back. And you're like, what is up here? Well, let me share this with you. First of all, we're so grateful you're here. Second of all, here at Connect Church, we preach the word. And so we go primarily verse by verse, at times chapter by chapter, and we preach the word. And we don't shy away from things the word of God doesn't shy away from. But let me tell you the greater kicker here, okay? Is that when I see that God cares about our generosity and our giving, you know what it reinforces in my heart? That God cares about me. And not just some of the areas of my life, but in all the areas of my life. The fact that he cares about my finances means he cares about my marriage. The fact that he cares about what I have, that means he cares about my kids. God cares about all of it. And he speaks life into all of it through his word. Here's the second thing we see, ready? When the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart and the life of a believer, watch this, you ready? We loosen our grip on and our affection for things. In this context, things was, was land and homes, their money. But listen, not only do we loosen our, and, and loosen our affections and our grip on things, but we tighten our grip and we focus our affections towards what matters the most to God. And you ready, church? That is people. The text says, and they gave to anyone who had need. More important than their stuff were people. And we see that that's one of the marks, one of the pictures painted of the gospel at work in the hearts and the lives of believers. I love what John Piper says. He says one of the things as well in Luke is that this, you ready? One of the central points of Luke is this. 
that in Christ, we are free from the love of things while at the same time firm in our love for people. I love that. Free from the love of things, yet firm in our love for people. Now, up until this point in Acts, here's what we find. You ready? The threat from the, to the church came from without the persecution of the Sadducees in chapter 3 and 4 in the temple area. The, the threat of the church came from without. And what we see here in the latter part of Acts chapter 4 into chapter 5 is we see the threat now comes from within the church walls. The enemy without is less to fear than the enemy within. And we see that played out here in the book of Acts. Scarier than the Sadducees of Acts chapter 4 is Sapphira in chapter 5. Ananias' actions are far more agonizing and egregious than that of the antagonist of this entire chapter in the life of this young church. And so I ask you, which camp are you in? Are you in the camp that has the boldness of Barnabas? Or are you in the camp that is defined by apathy like that of Ananias? Which camp are you in? You know, I begin to think about this camp thing. I mean, I have preached and I have done a lot of camps in my life in youth ministry. And I love camps. And there are some camps that are just really bad. This camp, not going to be one of your favorites. This camp right here symbolizes the apathy of Ananias. And if we're not careful, that's where you and I will find ourselves camping out. Let's, let's define apathy real quick. You ready? Apathy defined is a lack of interest. It's an indifference, a lack of concern for something. In fact, apathy is going to play the role, the exact opposite of biblical boldness here in Acts chapter 4. And five. Let's take a look at scripture together if we could. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says this Now, a man by the name of Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Let me stop right here. Man, they look like everybody else in this scene. They're going to give, they're selling property, they're going to commit, devote it all to the Lord, and give to those who had need. But here's where the problem comes in in verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, let's just stop here. What, what this is saying is that Ananias and Sapphira came together and did not create a spur-of-the-moment decision, but premeditated thievery, robbing God of what was devoted to him and robbing believers, embezzling from believers what was promised. And it says this, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back. Now that phrase is a word in the Greek that also can be translated as we find in other places like Titus. Kept back means this, to rob or to embezzle. And that's the picture painted here. That he robbed God and he embezzled from the people part of the money for himself. Now note this, he devoted it all to God. But he robbed God, kept some of it, and bought, brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now you and I read this story, especially in our culture today, and we go, what's the big deal? He still gave a lot of money to the church. Isn't that what matters? The church got some money and they were able to take care of people. But notice a couple things, the full knowledge. At the full knowledge, premeditated thievery and robbing of God, embezzling from the church. Notice the full knowledge there that is played out for the entire world to see here in Acts chapter five. He kept back. 
that which he had given and devoted, dedicated to God. And what we begin to see and uncover about our camp leader, Ananias. In this camp of apathy is two things. You ready? And jot this down. You ready? His love for things, in this case money, outshined his love for Jesus. His love for things outshined his love for Jesus. Hey, can I say this to you, church? It's okay to have money. It's okay to have things. It's okay to have stuff. But it is not okay for money, for things, for stuff to have you or to have me. Meaning it's not okay that our things, that our stuff, that our money take priority in our lives. It's not okay that they become the focus of our greatest priority, our greatest pursuits, and become the objects of our greatest affections. And by the way, things never matter more than people. Things never matter more than our marriage. Stuff never matters more than our kids. Things never matter more than those who are in need. This is why... Connect church. This is why generosity and giving, setting aside, devoting, dedicated a portion of your income. Aaron and I, it's 11% of everything that comes in. We give through the local church. That is why it's practically important. It says, God, it's all yours anyway. And thank you. God, it's all yours anyway. And thanks. Here's the second thing we uncover about our camp leader. You ready? In just a few verses. Ananias' desire to please people outweighed his desire to please God. Outweighed his desire to please God. What we find here in Acts chapter 5 is a show, is a faked faith in order to please people rather than a sacrifice to worship God. And that's what we find here with Ananias. Hey, can I share something with you? I'm in the people business as a pastor. Pleasing people is a real struggle for a lot of us, isn't it? Even those of you who would proudly say, I don't care what anybody thinks. You really do. People pleasing is a struggle for me. And can I share with you as a pastor in the people business, it is always a losing game we play. Because we cannot please everybody all the time. And therefore, as believers, you know what we must do? Make the commitment to please who matters most, and that's Jesus. We must make that commitment. I'll never forget, um, how long ago was it? Gosh, it has to be 20, 21 years ago. First Baptist Church, Sevierville, my home church. I love my home church. That they had built a brand new sanctuary. And while they were in the old sanctuary one night, they had a fundraiser for, of all things, a brand new organ for the new sanctuary. Now listen, I was new to my faith. I was a teenager. I had yet to develop a taste for organ music, okay? In fact, my philosophy was just bury me with one, in one, and I'll take one with me, right? And so I had no, I just didn't have a, a taste or care for an organ. Now listen, now I appreciate it, I love it. But when I was 16, 17 years old, I could care less about an organ. Now, as I'm sitting in this service on a Sunday night, they have a big trunk down in the middle of the floor. It was an organ musical 
extravaganza. I'm going to tell you everything a teenager desires in life. And so I remember listening to all this, seeing the trunk, and I knew there was, this is where it was going to end. Everybody's going to go down there, and they're going to put money in. I just knew it was going to happen. Now, just so you know, I worked at the track at Pigeon Forge. I had just on that Friday cashed my paycheck. I had around $275 in cash, large unmarked bills in my pocket. I was rich. I was loaded. And here's the deal. I put it in my wallet and I was proud. But as the end of that organ concert got to its place, I wondered how many people are really going to go down there and give money and listen. Everybody did. Everybody got up from their seat when the concert was over, went down to that trunk. And so, man, as quick as I could, I got in my pocket. I got the $275. I knew I had some dollar bills. And if I would lump them together, it would seem like a lot of money, right? And so I lumped together my dollar bills, and I walked down front, proud, making sure everybody saw me, and I threw down my wad of money. $2 for an organ. Man, I walked back strutting. I had some swag to me as I walked up those stairs back to the balcony, knowing I had just blessed God. And as I stood there and they were doing all the announcements, I went to grab the rest of my money and make sure I put it back in my bill. It was a lot of money. And I was missing a $100 bill. I, I remember standing there and I got sick. I thought, God, no. Please tell me I did not put $101 in that stupid trunk. And then I, I, was, I was new to church. I just remember thinking, can I go get change? Like, is that frowned upon? Evidently it was. And so I stood there, I was like, you're kidding me. And you know what I learned that day? A very important lesson when it comes to trying to please people. You ready? Pleasing people will always cost you. Amen. It'll always cost you. Now, I say that, and after the last service, a guy visiting from Michigan came up to me. He had a $100 bill and a $1 bill and said, no teenager should ever have to give to an organ and put it in my hand. I, was, I kissed him on the mouth, sent him on the way out. It's just unbelievable how God works. I ain't going to put it in nothing. We ain't buying an organ. Anyway, I just remember that. Hey, but you ready? Pleasing people will always cost you. I love what Dave Willis says. He says this, don't worry about other people's opinion of you. God never told you to impress people, but to love people. And pleasing people is so exhausting. Listen to what Peter had to say to old Ananias. Holy Spirit made it known to Peter. He said, Peter then said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled, that word filled means influenced, your heart that you have lied. Hey, by the way, this guy is the father of all of these. That you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land. Hey, can I remind us of this truth? You may be able to fool your family. You may be able to fool your friends. You may be able to fool your faith family like I so tried to do there at that organ concert. But hear me, you will never fool the Holy Spirit. He knows it all and he sees it all. And all lays bare before him. I heard the story once of two men who... Uh, who were seated next to each other on a long flight. The man sitting by the window looked at the man next to him there on the aisle seat and said to him, hey, listen, man, I just, I feel something about you. Are, are you a believer? I sense something. Are you, are you a Christian? 
And the man on the aisle seat said, absolutely I am. And, and the man at the window seat said, well, well, of course, probably you go to church. What church do you go to? And that go, guy goes, no, 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 no. I don't go to church. It's unnecessary. You see, there was a dying thief on the cross next to Jesus. And he never had to go to church, and he still made it to heaven. Well, the guy on the window seat said, well, good Lord. He said, what about, what about baptism? Surely you've known the command of Christ, and you've been baptized in and the man on the window, or the aisle seat said, no, 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 an unnecessary custom. You see, the dying thief on the cross was never baptized, but he still got to heaven. The man at the window seat said, well, what about, what about giving to the Lord through your, through your local church, about your generosity? And he stopped and said, absolutely not unnecessary. The dying thief on the cross never gave a penny to the church, and he still made it to heaven. The man at the window seat began to think, he being a believer himself, he said this to the man. He said, you know what? You're pretty fond of that dying thief on the cross, aren't you? And he said, in fact, I am. He said, but let me tell you two differences between you and him. He was a dying thief, and you're a living one. And you're a living one. And you know what we find here about Ananias? Is he is a living thief, who soon will be anything but that. Look at verse four. Guys, this is where the story turns. And if you're a pastor and you're preaching through a book and you get to a passage like this, you're like, oh my, here we go. Listen to how this story ends here. In verse number four, Peter would go on and continue to interrogate him. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Meaning this, he didn't have to give it all. He promised it all. He didn't have to dedicate it all. He devoted it all to the Lord. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened to him. What? Y'all check on your neighbor real quick. Everybody okay? Everybody still breathing? Well, are, you, are you kidding me? In fact, it goes on to say that Sapphira, uh, not only what happened to her husband, came on the scene. And Peter would say, why have you tested the Holy Spirit like this? And his sweetheart died. And you and I look at a passage like this, we look at this scene, and we say, man, it's just crazy to think that God would take their lives. Nonetheless, for a sin that you and I would so easily sweep under the rug. Yet we are reminded that even the sins that we don't think are a big deal cost Jesus his life Amen. and are a big deal to God. Now listen, not everybody who robs God immediately dies as a result. I wonder how many of us would be left here. <laughs> I, I mean, after my one organ story, I would be gone. But hear me. But as many things we find in Acts... This would serve as a sign to the church in two ways. You ready? You may want to jot this down. It would serve as a sign to the church in two ways. Number one, the closer we are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. The closer we are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. I love what J.D. Greer would say. He would define the fear of God as this. All mixed with intimacy. We are invited through the gospel in Christ to the closest possible relationship with God, but this intimacy must never overshadow the majesty of who God is. You know Ananias and Sapphira? 
as they camped out together, you know what they forgot? You know what they lost sight of? The majesty of God. Here's the second thing this sign shows us. No pun intended, but sin is a deadly, serious matter to God. If if we're not careful, we live as if God is so full of grace that he will allow me to do and to sin as I please. And this is a reminder that that is not so. Sin is a deadly serious matter to God. Ananias and Sapphira's death, though troubling, doesn't mean that God's going to strike down anyone who acts as they did. But their death is a picture of how God feels about their actions and their sin. R.C. Sproul would say this, we forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not to become bolder in our sin. Notice in verse 5 and 11, the product of Ananias and Sapphira dying at the camp out. Here's the deal. You ready? The product of that is that great fear spread out among the church. You ready? A fear that led to an awe and a wonder and an intimacy with God. And it's a reminder, hear me, church, that God takes all sin seriously especially when it is a threat to the unity of his church. And that is what we see played out here. Now, why preach this? Well, number one, we don't shy away from the hard stories. Listen, I'd much rather preach about God breaking people out of prison than Ananias and Survivor dying at the camp out. But hear me, why preach this? Not so that you and I might fear dying, but that you and I that our greatest fear would become missing out on all the living we can do in Christ as we learn to love him more than our things, our stuff, our money, and as we care more about pleasing him than we do pleasing people. Here's what we find in Ananias' camp. You ready? I wrote these out for us. We find lying. Lying to people and lying to God. Here's what else we find over here at Ananias' camp. Find a whole lot of faking. They were faking their faith in order to please people. Here's what else we find at Ananias' camp. You ready? Robbing. They were robbing God of what was his in the first place. They were robbing. They were embezzling from the church what they had promised. And here's what else we find over here in Ananias' camp. We find dying. Now, I'll tell you something. We love camp. I've preached hundreds of camps through my life. We do camps with our students. How many of you parents would say, hey, listen, along with the great worship and the preaching and the beats and the pools and all that good stuff, there's dying there. Probably not going to sign your kid up for it. You know what the good news is? Oh, Ananias' camp. You don't have to camp out there. You don't have to live there. You see, there's, a, there's another camp. There's another place for you and I to lead. You ready? Not in the ap- apathy of Ananias, but you ready? You and I can camp out in the boldness of Barnabas. And my challenge to you this morning is to leave that camp and let you and I camp out there until the Lord comes in the boldness of Barnabas. Take a look at this, you ready? 
In Acts chapter 4, we're backtracking a little bit, but the Bible says Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. This is our first introduction in Scripture to Barnabas. It won't be our last, although we're going to see much more of him down the road in Acts. Here's what we know of him. In just a couple of scriptures, you ready? Both his name and his generosity give us a window into his character, his love for the Lord, and what matters most to him. Hey, by the way, if this is all we ever knew of Barnabas, it would be enough. And oh to God that this is what people would know of you and me. Hey, listen, you ready? Be reminded that boldness doesn't only happen in a public forum, in public demonstrations. But boldness is built in the everyday private devotion to Jesus. That is where boldness grows and is made effective. And here's what we find out about Barnabas. You ready? Take this in notes. Barnabas was bold in his love for Jesus, which outshined any kind of affection or love for stuff or things or his money. You ready? He had stuff, but stuff didn't have him. Hey, you ready? When you love Jesus, when you're bold in your faith for Jesus, money, things, and stuff find their place in our lives, but never take the place of Jesus, the gospel, and generosity. And that's what happens when you and I camp out here. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what I know about Barnabas? He is a cheerful giver in the service of a cheer-giving God. Can I ask you something, church? Are you a cheerful giver? Well, hey, pastor, great message. It's not self-serving at all, is it? Maybe you fight that when you prepare for something like this. You know what? I don't know what you give. I don't care what you give. And you don't have to give it here. You could go join another church you give there. But I'm going to tell you something. Aaron and I, on purpose, have camped out over here in our finances, in our giving. Do you know why? Because in our boldness, we want to be cheerful givers because we love and we live for and we serve a cheer-giving God. And that's what we find in Barnabas' life. Here's what else we find. You ready? Barnabas was bold in his desire to please Jesus, which outweighed his concern for what people thought of him. You know what's amazing? Oftentimes for people pleasers, we allow people who care nothing for us the loudest voice in our lives while drowning out the voice of the very one who created us, who saved us, who loves us and knows everything about us. We allow that voice to be drowned out by the people you and I try to please. You ready, church? Please the one who matters the most, and that is Jesus. And that is apparent in this camp. The camp leader, Barnabas, I don't know about you, but I'm a little over a year into this pastoring thing, and uh, I'm pretty exhausted. 
pretty drained at the thought of having to please everybody. I ain't signing up for that. I'm going to please who matters the most. And that's Jesus. And you know what? Through me and through you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to love the people who need it the most as we're pleased by him the most. You know what's amazing about Barnabas? The closer he was to God's grace, the more he loved Jesus. Hey, sin was the deadly serious matter to Barnabas, and that is why as we see through his life, on in the book of Acts, that is why he seemed to want nothing to do with sin and did what he could to rid himself of it. Here's what we find in Barnabas's camp. You ready? And here's what I love about it. In Barnabas's camp, we find boldness. Unlike the apathy with those guys. You know what else we find in Barnabas's camp? We find generosity and we find life. Generosity and life. You want to know what the challenge is this morning, church? Camp out here. Don't spend another night there. Camp out with those who are bold for their faith in Jesus like Barnabas. Don't sit by the fire with those who are apathetic like Ananias. You ready? Have stuff, but don't let it have you. Care more of what God thinks of you than anyone else does because he matters the most. Give generously in and through your local church and watch how God uses it to his glory and your good. You know what it allows us to do? It allows us to loosen our grip on stuff, on money, on things, and to tighten our grip, to focus our affections for what matters most to God, and that's people. I don't know if y'all have ever had this happen to you, but if you've ever filled out mortgage papers, good Lord, you got to sign everything. You got to sign everything all the time. You ever had somebody come up to you and you had to sign an important piece of document and they'd say, put your John Hancock right here. Yeah, you ever had that happen to you? If not, it's happened to me a couple of times. It's a little annoying, but here's the deal. Let me give you a little history behind this. Take a look at this document. This is the Declaration of Independence. And I've zeroed it in. Here's what you notice about this document. That of all the 56 signers, there's one name that is loud and proud. You see it right here. Let's just bowl it up a little bit. You know whose name that is? It's John Hancock. He's one of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. And his signature stands out above the rest. And here's why. He was the first to sign the Declaration of Independence. And he signed it large and legible. And here's why so that the king of England could read his name without even having to use his glasses. Hey, John Hancock wanted to be very clear where his allegiance lied. His commitment to his country was so clear that when King George III offered amnesty to anyone who would stop fighting, there was an exception made for John Hancock. No amnesty would be offered to him. I think about these camps and I begin to think about where my allegiance lies. You ready, church? I want to be clear where my allegiance lies. It is not in the things of this world, 
nor does my allegiance lie with pleasing people. I want the enemy to know loud and clear that my allegiance lies with Christ, that I am in the camp of boldness, and there is nothing this world can offer that will draw my love, my affection, my allegiance away from Jesus Christ. And so you know what? I'm signing up today to camp out there in the boldness of those like Barnabas. And I'm going to make a commitment to you. Everything in me, I will never even sit at a campfire here. I won't even sit there. question for you and me is, where does our allegiance lie? Where is it that you and I camp? Disturbing story. You don't wrestle through with it. What is all this taking place? But what's clearly demonstrated is this. Is that those who camp out here are time and time again used of God. And those who camp out there never are. And why does all this matter? Hey, what does it matter, Pastor Anthony, if I decide to sit by the fire over here a a couple of times in my life and I walk away from this camp? You ready? What matters is hundreds of names in here. Remember, these these are your ones. You wrote their names down because they're close to you, but they're far away from God. and, And you know what? It matters because they need Jesus. And they're not gonna find him there. But they will find him here. Where are you camping at, church? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.